Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 155. I'm your host, Eric Moore. Back with me this week, our long-lost semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestercelli. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing well until you said I was long-lost. Eh? I know I missed a few here, my friend, but lost, I don't know about that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's been uh, all of, I think, two or three weeks, but you're back on and and Jay, by the way, a little bit of a major milestone. I was going to say congratulations, although you and I had nothing to do with this. It's politicians. Congratulations to the United States on reaching $30 trillion in debt. Congratulations, Jay. I know yeah, you're Yeah, it's nice to have a nice round number there, right? I, you know, that's good. Not yeah. So good. <laughs> Just kidding. It is. You know what? Let's, let's, let's spend a couple of minutes on this because I think it's interesting. By the way, $30 trillion is the the total debt. And then you also have what's considered debt held by the public. And and I won't get really wonky on this, but it's like, you know, Social Security, if they hold treasuries, technically we pay, you know, the government pays interest to itself. So the 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 total held by the public is about twenty three and a half trillion. So not quite the it's kind of like remember that it was a Dow ten thousand you had to give the hats back if you were on the floor. But um, right. I but do this actually, that. You, right? Remember that? And there were the, then there were guys who were like the, yeah, there were there were uh, men and women with, yeah. Remember they had the hats, like men and women had the hats at like their post, and they're like, oh, at some point we'll get back there, you know. So, but here's here's why this is interesting, and it, it sort of plays into the idea of the Fed raising rates, inflation, all this stuff. So last year. Uh, or at least I'm looking at uh, uh, some numbers. I found this on JP Morgan's Guide to the Market. They have the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, baseline forecast. Last year, or they expect us to pay about $306 billion in net interest payments on a budget of a total spending budget of $5.5 trillion. You're like, okay, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But here's some numbers for you, Jay. If we look at the debt held by the public, that $23.5 trillion. And then we, we start to look and we say, okay, well, the average interest rate that we're paying on treasuries right now, and this is from, the, there's a, a site, I'll link to it in the show notes that you can find that. It's about 1.56%. And so when you think about this, if let's say... Uh, interest rates went from 1.56% to 2.56%. Every 100 basis point move is about $300 billion extra in interest. So if rates just went to 2.56% and the debt stayed the same, meaning we didn't add debt, we know that's not going to happen because, well, politicians like to spend. doesn't matter what hat you wear on, on in that case. Now you start to to get into some crazy numbers. I mean, let's let's just social security spending is estimated to be about 1.2 trillion. Medicare and Medicaid about 1.4 trillion. Uh, what about defense? 749 billion. So if interest rates just go up, you know, a little over one basis point, one percent, we're spending as much on interest as we do on defense week. I guess we can get rid of armies, navies, air force, and everything like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But so Jay, th- this sort of plays into the idea of, uh, number one is, and I'll get your thoughts on this and then I'll, I'll explain 
maybe a few ways out of this and none of them are really good. Uh, but the idea, is there pressure? I don't want to say pressure, Jay, but on the Fed to keep rates low? I mean, I know politicians never try and influence the Fed. I'm smiling. There. Yeah, right. I, I have two comments on this. So, Derek, I, I yes, it's a staggering number. And yes, the interest rate uh, payments, uh, a huge chunk of the budget, a huge increase in the chunk of the budget uh, when, when you take a look at it the way you just positioned it. But I've got I've got two comments. So, yes, absolutely. I agree that just like everybody that remortgaged at lower rates and has you know, been able to afford more on their personal side, the government has enjoyed that kind of, uh, uh, you know, that kind of a position for the last, you know, decade plus, decade and a half with lower rates in general. And I, and so I do think that at some point that has to change, but, you know, Derek, tell me this, right? So of this debt that's out there, the 30 trillion that is out there, if rates change, in the next year because the market because of what the Fed does it actually doesn't change the coupon payments of the existing bonds am i correct about that you are correct and and i was curious about that myself i'll throw this number at you and then get more commentary from you of course uh, but the average maturity of the us treasuries is 62 months which is a little over 5 years and so you are correct on new debt Right. So unless they refinance all of that old debt at the higher rates, you won't actually have that extra $300 billion that has to be paid out. But I think over time you move towards that, right? The Fed is, uh, uh, I mean, the, the treasuries are constantly being issued and auctioned. And as you eventually move out of the existing debt into the new debt, the payments go up. But if the Fed raises rates by 100 basis points this year, it's not all of a sudden that the government's out $300 billion extra in interest payments. No, that's, that's right. And there's no call provisions on U.S. Treasury. So it's not like, I mean, that, that was one of the things, too. I heard some politicians, actually, and maybe they need to talk to someone who has some more information about this. But there's no call, in, call provisions on U.S. Treasuries. In other words, let's say the U.S. government, if rates went down to 1%, on average, and they're like, oh, our, our rates are 1.5%, uh, 6%. We're going to take that $23.5 trillion and refinance that. We're going to pay off the... No, no, you can't call in those bonds early. You can't do it. What, no. You can't do it. Now, as they run off, um, because we don't have the money as bonds mature to pay them, pay off the maturities and then just you know call it good. As the bonds mature, you issue new debt to pay the, the maturity principle back on the old debt, Jay. But but no, I, I think you're right. And the other question too is, what happens to the yield curve? So just because the Fed raises rates doesn't mean that the whole yield curve is going to go spiking up 1%. Um, in fact, some people think if the Fed raises, they could invert the yield curve. So I think you're right, Jay. It's not a tomorrow thing. And this is one of those, it matters when it matters, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, I, you know, I know you've hit on a lot of different parts of the fixed income market through the different uh, podcasts that you've done, but it's, it's the, you know, it's the new issuances that kind of really matter when it, when it comes to this. I, I, you know, you just brought up an interesting point about the yield curve um, and, you know, the market's reaction to it. Um, I, I do think it's not a foregone conclusion that if the Fed raises rates, rates across the board go up by that amount. 
right? So I, I, I think there's a lot of it already baked in, right? Today, I think I saw the two-year at 1.3, let's just say 1.3, 10-year at 1.9, right? So if rates go up, that doesn't necessarily mean that the if rates go up by 50 basis points in March, let's just say the Fed raises 50 bips, the two-year doesn't necessarily have to go up 50 bips, right? It doesn't have to go to 1.8. Uh, for the two year, right? It's probably already baked some of that in. And so there is a, you know, you you hope or the, the expectation is what the Fed does in the near term is it creates a ripple effect through the bond market. But the expectations, what a 30 year does or a 10 year bond does, doesn't necessarily correlate to what the Fed is doing on uh, uh, on the near term rate. And so I just, I think it's an interesting point that you bring it up. I think you start to see things like fear of the Fed is going to cause a recession and you could invert the yield curve, like you just said. It'll just it'll be really interesting to see how the bond market reacts uh, in March if we actually get, you know, a raise. And a month ago, I think I said I didn't think we'd see it in March. At this point, it feels like a foregone conclusion. Now the question is, is it 25 or 50? Which, you know, I'm kind of like shocked that I'm even saying that, but that seems to be what the market is bracing for. You, you see that in the pricing as well? Yeah. And I, I by the way, I think your points are, are really good. And I'll remind people that in the last rate tightening cycle, which was, it ended in 2018, interest rates on the 10-year went down after the Fed started to, to raise rates. And you're 100% right that that long end of the curve is is more about uh, expectations for growth, expectations of the economy. And it's one of the reasons, as we know, when we see an inversion in the yield curve, it's the market, and I'm saying the market, the bond market, does not believe in the growth story. And that is a bearish signal because when rates in the near term are higher than the long term, besides causing all sorts of problems for, for banks, um, you know that, that's obviously the case. Yeah, I mean, they want the safety of a longer, a longer haven, right? They want the safety of something that's going to outlast whatever you know a market event may cause, right? That's why they go to the longer dated stuff, pushing the price down, pushing the price up on the bonds, hence pushing the yield down because there's just more buyers there. By the way, Jay, you you mentioned the expectations of uh, interest rates. I look at the CME uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the futures exchange. They have a Fed probability tool. I mention it quite often. I'll link to it again. The March meeting date has a 75% probability of a 25 to 50 basis point Fed funds range. Uh, range. We're at zero to 25 right now, so that would be a, a rise of a quarter point. Uh, only a 25% probability of a 50 basis point hike. So that's two, you know, stacking two 25s all in one. Interestingly enough, though, Jay, a month ago, January 7th, uh, there was only a six and a half percent probability of a 50 basis point move. So it's now 25. Jay, I don't know if that syncs with what you're hearing and people uh, are talking about, but so far it's not a foregone conclusion, at least based upon the Fed funds futures prices. Right, right. Uh, so I, I'm with you, right? That is definitely what I'm I'm seeing on the, uh, you know, on the channels and the media uh, that I'm reading uh, is just, right, it's, you should count on the first hike in March. And, you know, if you don't get the if you don't get two in March, you probably get the second one by May. Do you have a May probability on, say, the second hike? Like what the rate will be like, what's the prob of like 50 to 75 in May? Is that one of the data points? 70 percent. 
Yeah. So that's 70%. the prevailing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is starting to lead me. I mean, I, I don't want to jump the gun on this, Derek, but it's leading to me to my kind of contrarian trade a little bit. If we want to jump to that, unless you want to keep going down the fixed income path here a little longer. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my, it's not like you and I plan this, uh, people should know we, we, part, <laughs> I'm just we you, actually, you curveball, buddy. <laughs> well, we actually, we, people should know, like when, when you do a podcast, the problem is if guests talk, if we talk to each other beforehand, all the good stuff already happens. We have topics and stuff. Um, yeah, let's. So what you're saying is this is the best it's going to get, even if we planned it. This is as good as we're giving them the best we got right no. now. <laughs> Let's do the contrarian <laughs> trade, and I'll, I'll maybe throw throw my contrarian trade later. So contrarian corner, uh, really contrarian meaning everyone thinks X, and you're maybe throwing out an idea for Y. And I'll remind people, this is not investment advice. Like, don't do this. So, you know. I mean, don't, don't like, you know, that's not how we invest, right? We, we invest long-term and we invest, we buy and we hedge on, on the majority portfolios. Okay. Let me get that out of the way. Jay, you be the contrarian for a second. Great. Yeah. So thanks for that. So, uh, you know, kind of lined up with what you just said there in our portfolios, there's a position that we have on in our hedged equity portfolio, the buy and hedge retirement strategy, flagship for Zega Financial. Uh, that strategy holds high yield, but with a hedge. It's hedged. We don't want to take too much risk. We don't want to take uh, uh, default risk. We don't want to take, you know, uh, uh, runaway market risk. So we kind of limit the risk there. It's actually the most money we've ever spent on our high yield hedge. Right? We are, we're hedged up, right? We think rising rates are going to give high yield a problem. And if rates get out of control or inflation is really, really high, and I know you want to talk about inflation later, Derek, um, we just think that that could give the market trouble. So we're overly hedged right now in our high yield position that we happen to have. Now, um, I, you know, the contrarian trade here for me is, you know, at some point we need to harvest the gains on that hedge. I do think that the, 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 uh, the fixed income market is working itself up into a little bit of a, of a fear froth. And, uh, for me, it's, you know, let's, Let's get that hedge off as we're going into the March meeting. And I'm not sure if we're going to do this within the portfolio or not. I think I'm the only one on our investment committee that even thinks this way. But I'd like to go in the face of all of the talking heads and all of the uh, the Fed position prognosticators and say, when we kind of hit max fear leading into that uh, leading into that meeting, I to me, it's time to either... I would add to my high yield exposure. I would remove as much of the hedge that I had or take any profits I have in my hedge. So that's my contrarian trade. It's even against the contrarian <laughs> position of our own strategy. But, you know, listen, this is why we have an investment committee. And while we probably won't do it in that portfolio, to me, that's the trade that if you want to go against consensus, uh, gives you an interesting opportunity. We th think about, all right, so the contrarian, I like the idea. And I think it, it leads to the question, I mean, do you think, there is max fear yet. I mean, I, I, you pull up CNBC and you start, I always call it the, the cupcake indicator. And let me explain that. So I don't, there's nothing wrong with cupcakes. They taste fantastic. I don't know how to cook one, but other people certainly can. But if you ever Just look at the local that you news. Cook cupcakes, Derek, you've told everybody you don't bake cupcakes. That's true. Like just by calling it cooking, you just. You bake. You bake cupcakes. You don't, you don't cook so you don't cook pastries, you bake them. Okay. There you go. You, don't, you, you, you bake desserts. All right. I'm crossing that off the list of potential retirement uh, 
career, post post <laughs> no, retirement no career for you. Yeah. Yeah. But all right, let me get this back on track though. Think about fear. When you watch your local news and a lot of times I come in, I'll see there'll be somebody like baking, okay, baking something or cooking, cooking something. And you know, that I have a contrarian indicator where if they have like the Dow Jones ticker in the bottom right corner, when the markets are, are in fear, that's like the capitulation point. But yeah, I don't know that we're at capit. I, I think you're saying in the future there'll be some sort of capitulation and max fear. Yeah, we're not when, there. That's when right. it's done. That's right. I, I don't think we're there yet, but I certainly think we're heading towards that. There's going to be a point where there's just the pendulum has swung way too far on uh, expectations of how many raises the Fed's going to do. We're not there do you, yet, but it feels like it's. What inning? Or, let me ask you this though: what what inning do you think we're in? And let me frame seventh. it this way: we're seeing seventh, seventh inning. Okay. Of, of fear. Because we're seeing, like, if you pull up CNBC, one of the, I think it was on CNBC, and if it's not, it's somewhere else. It's the, hey, tomorrow, and by the time people listening to this, the, the January CPI inflation numbers will already be out. But they're like, hey, you know, if, if this is a big print, the Fed might have to raise much quicker. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there on inflation, and it's, it's on the local news as well. People are running the stories interviewing the shoppers outside a, a you know, a Fry's food store. Uh, I was going to say Pathmark, but nobody outside of the, the Northeast knows that one. But you don't, you don't think it's there yet, even though we're seeing all this stuff. I, I don't, I don't think we've hit fed fear max yet. And I, but I do think we're starting to get, you know, people worried about inflation. I just don't know if everybody can connect the dots on why inflation can be difficult for the markets. Or even if it is difficult for the for the stock market, right? So I don't know, I don't know if everybody's co- you know connected those dots. And to be fearful of something you don't understand how it actually is going to impact your investments is is you know another capitulation sign uh, to me. But I don't you know, listen. I don't I don't think we're there yet. And you know we could talk about CPI and inflation if you want, Derek. But we should maybe help people understand why it's even a concern. Like who cares if milk's more if your wages went up. You pay the same, you know, percentage of your income, right? So maybe we maybe we can talk about that for a minute, not to throw you off target on what we wanted to cover today. But I, I think you want to talk about a little bit about inflation, right? Yeah, no, I, I think so. So be, yes, we should get into that. I'll point out though, one of my pet peeves is if inflation is high tomorrow, it should expect it should surprise nobody. If it's high in February, meaning the the one you'll get the report that will be released in March. I mean, there's the Cleveland Fed has been releasing, they call it inflation now cast. And there's different central, you know, I was going to say central banks, but, you know, Goldman, Bank America, they all have forecast, uh, you know, briefing.com puts out a forecast. Let me just give you the, uh, the inflation now cast. So now cast just basically it's a present forecast with all the information that, that they have. So February, January is expected year-over-year CPI is 7.26. That would be higher than the last one. February is expected 7.5. Monthly CPI for Jan, a a rise of 0.43%. February, a rise of 0.63%. So one of the things I would ask too is like, I I know that a lot of people don't follow this. And so when the headline gets, gets posted tomorrow, Again, when you're listening to this, this will be a few days old. You'll have the, I, I know there's going to be the stories. Highest inflation since 1981. 
but this isn't a surprise to me. Like this is already no, the market, in there. The market right? knows it's coming. No, no, it's headline news. But the the market knows this is here, right? This is uh, yeah. You're going to get a print that should be. It's it's creating headlines, and we've talked about sensationalizing headlines to create, you know, following and viewing. And heck, we even do it on the podcast a little bit, right, Derek? We try to pick topics that will, you know, try to find ourselves a Gibraltar, you know, downloader, right? Like this is, yes. uh, it, it, it makes sense to do that, but just recognize when it comes to the way you're invested, this is not a surprise. I fully agree with you. I mean, I guess there could be a surprise if we saw like a 9% year over year print or a 5% year, like plus or minus one or 2% from the expected seven that you just mentioned, seven plus. That to me is news because you'd have a surprise, but the seven is in there. It's baked into the market. All right, Jay, connect the dots. Your your gallon of milk at the store is more expensive. Connect the dots for people. I think you wanted to, to do that. I, just just a little bit, right? So is that a problem for your investments, right? And I'm only talking about your investments, right? So the answer is your dollars don't buy you as much as before. That's a little bit of a problem, right? If you're making the same salary, but all of your goods and expenses go up, you're obviously your dollars don't get to purchase you as much. You may be spending the exact same amount of dollars you were spending before, you just get less. So GDP doesn't change in that scenario very much because you're spending the same amount of dollars. GDP and corporate earnings don't change very much, but you just get less as a consumer. So economic-wise, your confidence go down, confidence, like consumer confidence will drop. Those things can be a little concerning to the market, but things like GDP and corporate revenues probably don't change very much. Now, if your salary goes up along with it, you're spending more right? You're even because now you're still spending the same amount you would normally spend on milk percentage wise or gas, or whatever it is that you're spending the money on. Um, you're now increasing corporate earnings and increasing GDP. Now, GDP does an adjustment, does an inflationary adjustment, correct, Eric? And we don't have to get into the nitty gritty too much about it. We know that inflation will naturally push GDP higher, will naturally push corporate earnings higher. However, while GDP has an inflationary adjustment, corporate earnings really do not, right? I don't, I don't think there's ever, oh, Microsoft or Apple made, you know, $60 billion last quarter, but on an inflationary adjusted basis, it's only 55. It's not the way that works, right? You just see the corporate earnings number. So while inflation itself will be difficult for the actual consumer, um, it actually won't hurt, it shouldn't hurt in the near term, corporate earnings. Now, it may hurt their costs, right? Costs may go up with corporations spending more. And okay, that does that ripple through to the end client? Probably because the prices are going up too. So, you know, all of those things are not the worst thing in the world. The thing that should give concern is when the Fed decides it's too much, right? The thing that's really concerning. So the inflation itself isn't the problem. It's To me, it's more along the lines of what the Fed is going to do by raising rates or to slow down that inflationary number, right? Because there are limits that you don't want to get to when it comes to inflation. And Derek, I'll leave you to, to explain the late 70s and 80s inflationary problems. But for the Fed to start to increase rates, it starts to make bonds more viable. And people will say, you know what? If I could earn 3% in a treasury or a 2% dividend on my S&P 500 ETF, which one of those two ways do I want to go? 
you'll naturally see flows back to the bond market. So because the Fed raises rates, makes bonds more attractive, you could lose the multiple out of the S&P 500, regardless of how good earnings are, unless they're going to pass it through in dividends. You're not going to get much more money over there in the stock market. You will get more money in the bond market, and it will flow funds to fixed income out of stocks. It's way too early for that to have happened today, but that's why there is all this fear, in my opinion, around what's going to happen to the stock market when the Fed starts raising rates. So hopefully, you know, Derek, beat that up a little bit. Tell me what you think on that. Yeah, I agree. We're not we're not there yet. I I uh, yet uh, we're not there yet. It is an interesting, and I won't get into the academic side of the you know expected return and and uh, equity risk premium and all that stuff. Uh, the three listeners we have will will dwindle quite quickly. But there is sort of this the line of indifference between stocks and 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 bonds. I mean, I always joke that if I wrote my book, Broken Pie Chart, or you wrote your book, uh, Buy and Hedge, both available on Amazon. And I mean, why not look at uh, Valentine's Day and President's Day is coming up. So they buy them both, buy one for one, one for the other, you know, buy them both. Wonderful package deal. Yeah, give give the gift of knowledge. Yes. We'll we'll link to those in the show notes. But I, I, Jay, I mean, in all seriousness, I I joke (laughs) around if I wrote my book in 1982, I'd say buy the 30 year US Treasury yielding 15%. And I'll write the, you know, the 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 a bridge uh, the the redone version thirty years later. Like at some point, if you're like, oh, I can get seven percent, pretty. It's not risk free because you have interest rate risk. But if I can get seven percent at a treasury bond, and historically the compounded growth rate on stocks is eight percent, hmm, that gets really interesting there. And plus. Future earnings, uh, the higher you have to discount those down to the present, the less those future earnings are. And theoretically, if you're using you know, valuation metrics. And so, yeah, Jay, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and it also, you know, slowing down the economy. That's the other issue. So then you start to get into people's jobs and people's, you know, if your income's higher. But by the way, Jay, there is a flip side to this, though. And that's if you have a mortgage. Let's say your mortgage is $2,000 a month and we get 5% a year inflation for 10 years. Well, uh, if you adjusted that mortgage payment of $2,000 for that inflation over the next 10 years, uh, your payment would be $3,257. But if your payment is fixed at $2,000 and there's inflation, in theory, that actually makes your costs go down. And that's one of the reasons, a, a weird way, if we had massive inflation, assuming we don't get too crazy on uh, you know, the budget deficit, the budget deficit would shrink on an inflation-adjusted basis, but we're getting off the rails quick. Uh, but that's, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's sort of the, the deal there is you know, triangulating it back to people's preferences. And, and uh, you know, everyone has, I, I hope most people have 401ks at least. So this stuff matters to people, Jay. Yep, it totally does. And you know, the you did touch on a point a second ago that uh, uh, maybe we go back to. You did talk about you know how inflation may you know uh, uh, sorry raising rates would potentially impact certain sectors of the of the market and potentially impact some growth uh, of those sectors. I think the real estate sector is something that'll get will cool down as the Fed raises rates. 
But I'm not sure that is the thing that's driving all of the inflation. Well, we know it's not the thing that's driving all of the inflation. But I, again, we, this is a repeat from before. I'm still not convinced that it actually helps raising rates actually help ease the inflation due to, say, supply chain constraints. Not sure how that cleans it up, and it may even increase it, right? So a little repeat on a topic from the last time that we talked about this, but felt it was worth bringing up again, that they may not, you know, this is why the market is a little concerned that the Fed does raise five times this year, right? Is that actually going to ease the inflationary pressures they're trying to address? I'm not sure. Some of it, yes. All of it, uh, pretty sure no. I'll put a link to that episode so people can listen to that discussion and banner and see how much we're wrong or right on our predictions there. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not sure. Yeah, we beat that up enough. I, I think it's more supply side. And um, before I, I get to the next topic, though, Jay, I, I figure I'll uh, uh, just mention to people if if they're interested in seeing a little bit more about how we manage portfolios. Give me a shoot me an email. It's uh, Derek at zegafinancial.com. That's D E R E K dot M O O R E at Zega, Z is in zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple, financial.com. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. Jay, uh, on the, uh, the contrarian corner, my contrarian this week is to buy, and again, not, not investment advice, uh, but Buy some, maybe a you know, find a mutual fund or, or an ETF uh, that buys emerging market value stocks. Emerging Those things, market crap. value. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you should unwrap shocked. that a little bit. <laughs> I, I am. I'm, what? Let's hear about that. So, emerging markets. By the way, it's interesting. I don't think I'd have to look at a chart, but they haven't made a new high and several years. I mean, they've traded sideways to down. It's it sort of was everybody's pick a few years ago and it didn't work out. But value, some of the emerging market value, I was taking a look at one fund and um, it, I mean, the, the, the trailing PEs on some of that stuff are like five to eight. I mean, it's actually like talk a about real, a low a real multiple. PE? A real PE? A real PE. A PE? Like a real PE? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like a real PE. And it's like, and then, you know, the yields on some of that stuff is is pretty big as well, you know, because they're paying dividends. You know, emerging markets, it's it's China, it's uh, Taiwan, Russia, Brazil, you know, all, all the those different markets. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of unloved right now. Um, by so, the way, but, you but should usually, take. Oh, go ahead. No, you ask your question. I was going to say, right, usually when you think of EM, you think of potential outperformance through growth. You think of rebound trades. You think of, uh, you know, currency flows, right? But you went down the value route, right? You didn't go down, you know, picking uh, uh, the new semiconductor company or, you know, the new, uh, you know, internet company, right? The whoever's going to, you know, whatever China's going to let you do or not do, right? You went down the value path, which typically insinuates what longer uh or maybe i'd say more mature companies paying a dividend right uh like you just said lower pe right so you know tell me you know with with go down the emerging route why not growth out of emerging why the value side it's it's really it's a it's a re-rating it's a multiple play so it's it's the idea of these well, multiples are so unloved yes so unloved and you know, it, it's and you're right. It's not it's not the growthier companies. It's it's uh, 
you know, do these PEs re-rate from single digits to maybe 10, 11, 12? That's a pretty big move. And, but it's, it's also a, it's a contrarian because it's really unloved. Like I don't, I don't you know, emerging markets. Well, that's, that's true. Listen, I haven't heard anybody mention that, right? So maybe it's the, maybe it's, you know, it's what nobody's thought of versus going against what everybody's talking about. But you're right. That's, that is a unique one, Derek, that you got there. The, and it's also a dollar, you know, the dollar has run up quite a bit. If you get any, any sort of, uh, you know, pressure release on the price of the dollar, that helps EM and things like that. Who knows? But by the way, uh, I did say my uh, my long shot pick to be in the Super Bowl was the Raiders and the Buccaneers. So if that's any indication of uh, of, of uh, my sorry, I picked my the, prowess. the terrible Cowboys. So there you. Oh, go. that's so right, you did. Unfortunately, yeah. let's switch uh, to our final topic, Jay. Which is uh, speaking of unloved or love, people seem to really like the idea of buying puts for protection. A Bloomberg article recently ran, and they mentioned that. Put buying, which is hedging, is at the highest level since April of 2020. Jay, we know that the crowd normally is wrong, and, and the Bloomberg article made the point of, hey, this could be a, a sign that equities are poised to run. So, you know, Jay, we hedge all that we're always hedged, uh, hence the buy and hedge strategy. And sometimes when nobody wants to hedge, it's the best time to hedge because it's really cheap. Um, but Jay, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, what we're seeing in, in sort of the options market. First off, I, I love that Bloomberg is talking about options. I love that Bloomberg is talking about hedging. I can't talk enough about hedging, right? We can't talk about the the advantages of hedging and what it what it does for you enough, right? It it affords you the ability to not have to time the market for your protection. It affords you the ability to be opportunistic. When the market is in decline, because you've got something making money or avoiding a loss, while everything is a, while everything else is losing money. So, I I love the topic, right? And certainly, we watch the cost of puts on a pretty regular basis. It's the easiest way to hedge. Uh, just buy a put. Just buy a put on the S and P five hundred. It's the it's the easiest way to do it. And uh, it's it's a little lazy if you don't want to put in the work to figure out which sectors are going to do best for you, but better than having no hedge at all. And so you're right. When you start to see a premium increase on the puts and you see volume increase on the puts, it tells you everyone's putting on this excess protection. Everyone is bracing for the big sell-off. But the whole point of what I just said with putting on the puts is so you don't have to sell your underlying stocks. You don't have to sell your equities. And so this is why as those puts get purchased, as those puts get added to portfolios, as they get added to funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, individual uh, separately managed accounts by advisors, it tells you that they want to hold what they have. It tells you that they're not going to liquidate their underlyings because they've put in an opposite side trade. So while Derek is right that there is the contrarian nature of, hey, everyone's hedging, that means they're all wrong. Yes, that's a piece of it. But to me, the actual dynamic of it is, well, now they don't have to sell, right? They don't have to exit their Apple or Amazon or their Google or their NVIDIA that they bought because they've bought hedges and they've got an offset. They'll sell that hedge first for to earn gains on their protection before they drop their stock. So that's to me why, you know, I love seeing this kind of information. Um, it's why there is the 
you know, natural flow of dollars and the psychology of the hedger to not have to time the exit and re-entry. Jay, what about the the idea of peak fear? I mean, it seems like, you know, peak fear to me, and I always remember 2008, 2009, you know, 2009 at the the market lows, that's when people stop opening the statements. They stop looking. They stop uh, looking, you know, right. Yeah, like that that's peak that that to me is um what it's not indifference, it's uh, you know, apathy towards the market. But then the the prior regime to that is is the peak fear and, and I remember 2008 I mean, people were selling, they were going to cash, they were staying in cash, they were probably selling at the lows, or if they weren't selling, they they made this rush to buy insurance. You know, we, I won't tell the, the analogy again, but it's kind of like, you know, hey, there's a hurricane off the coast of Florida where you live, uh, high insurance company, I'm thinking about buying some hurricane insurance, like that's, but I, I think from a sentiment point, like a, you know, people wanting, and it's interesting analogy of, I don't want to sell, so I need to hedge, but they're, they're buying it at the exact wrong time when it's the most expensive. I don't, I mean, implied volatilities are, yeah. Yeah. Like buying, obviously, uh, you know, the people that are selling the insurance understand what they're selling to you, right? If you're buying the puts, if you're buying the protection, the person selling it to you is doing the math and goes, okay, I want to make sure I get paid for the risk I'm taking, right? Because they're on the other side of that trade. Um, they're going to make it more expensive. And so, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, we're always hedging. We're always using protection in our portfolios. The reason we do it is there's times the hedges are expensive. There's times that they're really cheap. And, you know, in February of 2020, for example, you know, up until the 22nd, when the market was at a high, nobody really thought this COVID thing really mattered. And guess what? We were hedging that day too, right? So, you know, it's one of those things that, if you have a regular regimen and you're always building your portfolios that are constructed with the hedge, you get to smooth out that cost. Sometimes you're buying when it's expensive. Sometimes you're buying when it's cheap. Most of the time, it's better to buy it when it's cheap, when there is the least amount of fear, because fear will come in and now your hedges are worth something, right? So you get to be the one dropping the insurance to somebody else. Yeah, I, I you know, Derek, you, you're right when, um, when, you, when you talk about the cost of hedging going up when fear is peaking out because people are willing to pay more, right? Like, I don't care. Just get me protected here. Take $10 a contract, take $12 a contract used to be six bucks, but I, you know what? I don't care. I'd rather spend a little extra right here. And the people, the, the market makers or those, anybody selling a hedge know that's, knows that's the case too. So yeah, I mean, there is an emotional reaction. If there's, if I have to put the one data point that would accurately reflect the emotional disposition of the market, it's the cost of options. It's the implied volatility. It's the, you know, what the premium someone's willing to take to put on a position regardless of the cost. To me, that's the best way to, to gauge the emotional disposition of the market. And, you know, a lot of people watch the VIX for that, Derek, um, right? The VIX the, gives you the implied risk of implied volatility over the next 30 days. I don't, I, you know, Derek, it just doesn't feel to me like the VIX is maxed out for this kind of risk that we're seeing right now, like this, you know, longer term fear of what the Fed's going to do and, you know, are they going to put the economy into, uh, into a recession? I don't, I'm not sure it's there right now. I don't know where the VIX is, is today. I thought, you know, low twenties is the last I saw it, but, uh, I just, I feel like it's not in that 30, 35 range, which is kind of where you see max fear. 
So I think it's it might be a little early or it's already passed. I don't know. Right. But the, to see that the options volume is really high on puts right now, all the VIX is where it is, um, it, the fear might not be over yet. And that's OK, because if you're hedged, that's fine. 20.3, by the way, is uh, what it's currently. And and we've seen, you know, uh, maybe this is a topic for another time, but just because the VIX is high doesn't mean it can't stay high. I mean, 2008, 2009, it was a number of years before the VIX was more at a historical, quote unquote, average level. So I think there's still, there's the Fed premium in there, uh, the put, you know, the Fed, the, the Fed risk premium. I think there's COVID risk premium still in there. There's, I mean, you know, countries are always having entanglements here and there. So yeah, you got the Russian fear. You got uh, right, that's in there, right? Potential, you know, you know, war with Ukraine scenarios built into the into VIX right now. There's 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 plenty of things that we could always you know point to that are driving the VIX. Heck, you could throw Bitcoin volatility into the VIX math, math right? So all of that stuff will kind of get gets boiled in there. And a VIX at twenty to me doesn't scream max fear uh uh like you would with you know max you know put volume however you know when i'm not sure exactly when that uh the data uh is covered in that bloomberg article i'm sure it's not you know up to today we could be on the we could be on the downslope of it too right i guess we'll see there's there's some anticipation leading up to the cpi number now there's anticipation anticipation leading up to the fed uh meeting in march Right. That's where you maybe start to see people willing to pay even a little more premium, maybe leading into that Fed meeting. Uh, they're willing to pay more premium for the protection. I mean, after what the Fed said last time and kind of did a 180 on the market, it's probably not a bad idea to have some protection on an equity portfolio going into that call. Well, I think we've covered uh, a lot of ground and probably a few things we've touched on at the end we can expand on in future episodes. Uh, by the way, folks, do send me emails for ideas for topics. A lot of times I do take those suggestions and wheel them into one of the shows. I'll put a link to uh, all the stuff, or I'll try and put a link to all the stuff we talked about or referred to, and if I can remember it all. And again, uh, Buy and Hedge, uh, Jay Pestercelli's book, and my book, Broken Pie Chart, fantastic Valentine's Day gifts. Um, I think your <laughs> spouse would like nothing else. Forget the roses. Um, and I apologize for any problems that causes you in the future. You just you can uh, read it together, like it's a nice couples activity, right? Let's let's right. read, you know, a chapter or two of a financial book. I don't, yeah. you know, dozen roses and anymore. yeah, dozen roses in one of the books or both books. You know, there why you not? Go. All right, Jay, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, sadly, we have yet to see a listener from Gibraltar, but we're still all hopeful. A uh, if anyone listens from Gibraltar, I promise I will sign and send a copy of my book, Broken Pie Chart, out to that individual. Jay, thanks again for coming on, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in the next couple of weeks. Bye.